You're listening to Epitaph. The lore of the modern vampire is well established. Everyone seems to know that they have fangs, drink blood, dislike garlic and crucifixes, and can be killed with sunlight or a stake through the heart. Authors like Anne Rice, Charlene Harris, and Stephanie Meyer have romanticized them in books that get translated into television shows and blockbuster movies. The reluctant vampire becomes a forbidden fruit for heroines like Bella Swan, Sookie Stackhouse, and even vampire slayers like Buffy Summers. But our modern mythology has roots that run far deeper than many realize. It has grown from a widespread Eastern European belief that the dead, even after they'd been buried, could return to harm the living. In this special Halloween season series, Epitaph will explore the roots of these legends to find out where they came from, because sometimes monsters are real. This is episode one, The Vampires of Eastern Europe. In 1746, Abbot Augustin Calmet, a Benedictine monk from France, wrote two volumes worth of dissertations, 115 total chapters, on the existence of angels, demons, spirits, magic, sorcery, witchcraft, and vampires. In his second tome, Calmet spent a considerable amount of time examining the stories of resurrections from the dead, instances of people returning from the grave, and those who had been thought to be dead, but were really only buried alive. He examined historical accounts of vampires in classical mythology in the 17th and 18th centuries, and he examined bodies that did not decay and corpses that continued to show life after death. And after those extensive studies, Calmet wrote, They see, it is said, men who have been dead for several months come back to earth, talk, walk, infest villages, ill-use both men and beasts, suck the blood of their near relations, make them ill, and finally cause their death, so that people can only save themselves from their dangerous visits and their hauntings by exhuming them, impaling them, cutting off their heads, tearing out the heart, and burning them. These revenants are called by the name of upirs, or vampires, that is to say, leeches, and such particulars are related of them, so singular, so detailed, and invested with such probable circumstances and such judicial information, that one can hardly refuse to credit the belief which is held in those countries that these revenants come out of their tombs and produce those effects which are proclaimed of them. Calmet's belief in these stories that came from Serbia and Wallachia would, in some ways, shape what we consider to be common vampire mythology today. His analyses would be studied, for example, by an Irish author by the name of Bram Stoker for a little novel he was writing about a certain Transylvanian vampire. Had these same discoveries been made today, modern forensics likely could have provided rational explanations for the many things that were observed. But people in the 18th century simply filled in the gaps between what they knew and what they observed with myth. But as we'll see in this mini-season for the month of October, sometimes the stories are just stories. And sometimes, the monsters are real. While there are creatures with vampiric tendencies that date back millennia, the mythology that we commonly ascribe to vampires was born in the mountains of Eastern Europe in the late 1600s. The Glory of the Duchy of Carniola, written by Johann Weikland Freyhar von Valvasor, a Slovenian aristocrat living in the Habsburg Empire, was one of the first works to document an encounter with a vampire. 
But Valvasor wasn't just an aristocrat. He was also a collector of books, coins, and minerals. He was a natural historian and a polymath, and such a well-respected scientist that he'd earned a place in the Royal Society of London. The glory of the Duchy of Carniola, published in 1689, is considered the main source of older Slovenian history. So while his account may be hard for modern skeptics to believe, it's easy to understand why it would have carried weight when it was published, and for centuries after. The encounter that he wrote of took place in a poor market town named Kring, in the Archduchy of Crane, on the Istrian Peninsula. He wrote, In the year 1672, this place has undergone a supernatural case, namely that a buried, dead body of a man named Yuri Grando is dug up with certain ceremonies and cut off its head. Yuri Grando had died six and a half years before and had been buried. Father Giorgio, of the local Catholic parish, had performed the funeral mass. The next day, Giorgio had gone to Grando's home to have dinner with his grieving wife, and after dinner, when he opened the door to leave, he found Yuri sitting outside the door. After this, Grando was said to have appeared to those who knew him, most often at night. He'd be seen walking the streets, and sometimes he'd be found in their chicken coops. But what those in the village feared was that he'd become a harbinger of death. If he were to knock on your door, they said, soon after, someone would die. After several years of this, family members of those who died went to Supan Mio Raditic, that is, essentially the man who was the local sheriff, and asked him to deal with Grando. So the sheriff gathered eight neighbors, Mikolo Nayena, Stepan Malasic, Matijo Cheritskatin, Nikolo Matsina, Yuri Matsina, Yuria Sorsic, Martino Udore Itzic, and Mikolo Kreirir. He filled them full of liquid courage and set out to find the monster. But apart from the alcohol, two lanterns and a crucifix, they showed up at the cemetery unarmed. When they opened Grando's grave, Grando opened his bright red eyes and laughed at them. They did, of course, what any group of inebriated, unarmed people would have done when confronted with a red-eyed corpse that laughed. They ran. Sheriff Mio Raditic later gathered them back up and they again set out to confront Grando, this time with hawthorn branches sharpened into spears or stakes. They stabbed at Grando, but found that the sharpened spears couldn't pierce his skin. A priest held a crucifix before Grando's face and shouted, Look, you, Strigan, this is Jesus Christ who saved us and died for us, and you, Strigan, cannot rest. If you're curious exactly what a Strigan is, to these people at that time, it was something equivalent to an evil sorcerer or a worker of dark magic. In our modern culture, a Strigoi, a type of vampire, looks something more akin to Count Orlok, the monstrous villain played by Max Schreck in the Nosferatu movie from 1922. One of the men, Mikola Nayena, started attempting to chop Grando's head off with a garden tool, but he was too afraid to finish the job. So another of the men, Stepan Milosic, jumped in and decapitated Grando. According to the report, Grando's head shouted and then his grave filled with blood, and having finished the job, the men closed up the grave and went home. They'd succeeded. Grando was dead. For real this time. So what do we make of this? Well, vampire superstitions were often connected to disease. The first person to die, rather than being patient zero, was considered a vampire. Those who died after, rather than getting sick from the same disease, were the vampire's victims. 
Many of the things observed when the grave was opened, appearing fatter, fingernails or hair that may have grown, could often be explained by natural processes of decomposition. We now know that during the normal decomposition processes, the lungs fill with a red fluid and the brain liquefies. Hammer a stake into the lungs of someone recently deceased and the gases and fluids are forced outward and this can emit anything from a low groan to a high-pitched scream and the red fluid would look a lot like blood. At least, when the bodies were relatively fresh, that is. But Grondo had been dead for six and a half years before he was finally slain. And Grondo wasn't just said to have groaned when they stabbed him, something that could easily be explained as gases escaping from the body due to compression. Instead, he opened his eyes, he laughed at the men who'd come to kill him, and then he shouted when he was decapitated before blood that should have long since decomposed filled his coffin. It may have simply been folklore and legend even at the time, but it was passed into history as fact by a man who recorded this story for posterity and was one of the best scientists and historians of his era. And that might be easy enough to ignore, except that this case wasn't unique. A treaty signed in 1718, the Peace of Pesarowitz, transferred control of parts of Serbia and Wallachia to Austria. And while occupying their newly conquered territories, the Austrians noticed and began filing reports on the locals' practice of exhuming the bodies of their dead and re-killing them. By the time the provisor, a man named Frombald, would write his report about him, Peter Blagojevich had been dead for ten weeks. Or at least mostly dead, and there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Peter had lived in the village of Kisilova in Serbia and had been buried according to local custom. Ten weeks after Peter's death, nine others, young and old, also died, all within the span of a week, and frequently after suffering a 24-hour illness. Now this may sound like a common disease outbreak, except that on their deathbeds, each of the victims had claimed that Peter Blagojevich had appeared in their rooms while they'd been asleep, that he had laid on top of them, and that he had tried to strangle them. Peter's widow, too, had seen him. He'd come to their home and had demanded his shoes. She was disturbed enough by the encounter that she packed up her belongings and moved away. The villagers had come to believe that Peter was a vampire. They'd heard that there were various signs of vampirism, things like the body being undecomposed or the skin, hair, beard, or nails having grown, that they could observe by opening the suspected vampire's grave and, unanimously, they decided they were going to check. They went to Provisor Frombold, who served as deputy to the Catholic bishop or archbishop and the priest from the local Catholic parish, to ask permission to exhume Peter's body. Initially, Provisor Frombold rejected their request saying that he would need to seek permission from the Austrian government first. But the villagers told him that if they had to wait, they'd all simply leave the village and move elsewhere. So he conceded. And then he went with them. Frombold observed, I went to the village of Kisilova along with the parish priest and viewed the body of Peter Blagojevich just exhumed, finding, in accordance with all thorough truthfulness, that I did not detect the slightest odor that is otherwise characteristic of the dead. And the body except for the nose, which was somewhat fallen away, was still completely fresh. The hair and beard, even the nails, of which the old ones had fallen away, had all grown on him. The old skin, which was somewhat whitish, had peeled away, and a new fresh skin had emerged. The face, hands, and feet, and the whole body were so constituted that they could not have been more complete in his lifetime. 
The provisor also wrote in his official report that he saw fresh blood in Peter's mouth. And having witnessed this, the villager sharpened a stake and pierced Peter through the heart. Blood flowed profusely, not only from the wound, but also from his ears and mouth. And to be sure they were rid of the vampire, the villagers decided to burn Peter's body to ash. But as curious as they found this case to be, Peter Blagojevich wouldn't be the only vampire that the Austrians would discover in their new territories. In the spring of 1723, Arnod had returned home to his small village of Medvegia after a brief stint in the military. Arnod had been born and raised in Medvegia, but even so, people were surprised when he returned. He was still a young man, in his early 20s, and his military service had allowed him to travel and see the world. There was no reason, they thought, for him to come back to a tiny village like theirs. Arnott bought a small cottage and a few acres of land. He worked hard and was always ready to lend a hand when his neighbors needed help. But his neighbors noticed that he also had some very dark moods. He'd battle worry and depression, the sorts of things that these days we might attribute to post-traumatic stress. There was a pretty girl who lived at a neighboring farm named Nina, and even though everyone knew that Nina liked Arnod, it took him two years to propose. Arnod continued battling his depression, and when Nina would ask him what was troubling him, he would tell her that he always felt like death was with him. He'd close his eyes at night, convinced that he wouldn't wake up the next morning. While in the military, he said, he was attacked by a vampire. The people in that town told him that anyone who had been attacked by the dead was doomed to the same fate, unless he could destroy it. So Arnard had gone to the cemetery and after opening several graves, had found a body that, despite having been buried several months before, hadn't decomposed. So he drove a stake through its chest and decapitated it. He smeared himself in the vampire's blood as the townspeople had instructed, and then he ate dirt from its grave. Then, just to ensure its destruction, he burned the vampire's body to ash. He'd heard about these creatures all of his life, but it's easy to dismiss something like that until you've actually encountered one. After that, Arnod resigned from the army and returned home. He'd never gotten sick like so many others who were attacked had, and he didn't die. But even so, he still felt like death was following him, and he wasn't wrong. In 1726, it finally caught up with him. Arnod Pale, died of injuries suffered in a fall from a hay wagon. Most suggest he broke his neck. He was buried in the church cemetery in Medvegia, and he was survived by his wife, Nina. A month later, the trouble began. People in Medvegia were convinced that Arnod had returned. Several people claimed to have seen him. They claimed that he'd attacked both cattle and people, and of the people he'd attacked, four had already died. So 40 days after he was buried, Arnod was exhumed. He was undecayed, there was fresh blood in his mouth and on his shirt. His fingernails and toenails and the skin on his hands and feet had fallen off, but new nails and skin had grown in its place. Convinced that he was a vampire, the villagers of Medvegia drove a stake through his heart. He groaned and bled profusely, and then they burned his body and put his ashes back in his grave. And then they did the same for the four people that Arnott had killed. Arnott's case didn't fit with the patient zero supposition. He hadn't died of a disease. He'd died of an injury. But the people attributed the deaths that followed in a short span of time to him anyway, perhaps due in no small part to his own stories of having himself been attacked by a vampire. And after destroying his corpse and those who died in the days prior, 
It seemed as though maybe the town of Medvedia had saved itself. For five years, nothing out of the ordinary is recorded. But then, in the winter of 1731, people started dying again. And, at least as near as the villagers could tell, it seemed to begin with those who had eaten the sheep and the oxen that had to be butchered after they'd been attacked by Arnod Pale. According to one report, written by a man named Glazer, who was an infectious disease specialist for the Austrian military, by December 12th of 1731, 13 people had died in the past six weeks since the beginning of November. A 50-year-old woman named Melisa was the first to die. She'd come to the village from the Ottoman-controlled territory six years before, around the same time that Arnod had died. She'd always been a good neighbor and, so far as anyone had known, had never believed or practiced anything diabolical. But she'd eaten meat taken from two sheep that had been killed by vampires while she was still living in the Ottoman lands. Next to die were Milos, Joachim, and Peter, all teenage boys. Then Stana, a 20-year-old woman, and her newborn child. The child wasn't allowed to be buried in the church cemetery as it had died during birth and hadn't lived long enough to be baptized. Instead, it was buried near a fence at the house where Stana had lived. Next, a nine-year-old boy named Wuchiza, then a soldier's wife named Milosava, and a 24-year-old man named Roddy, and a 40-year-old woman named Rutsiza. Glazer noted that the sick had all complained of stabbing pains in their sides and chest, a prolonged fever and jerking movements in their extremities. But the villagers didn't attribute their deaths to disease. Instead, they believed that Melisa and Stana had both been vampires. Glazer could find no evidence of disease either, and instead blamed the deaths on malnutrition attributed to severe fasting common to the Eastern Orthodox Church. The villagers, however, insisted it was vampires. Glazer consented to the exhumation of the deceased and, to his surprise, found that they hadn't decomposed. His report recommended that they pacify the villagers by helping them to execute the vampires. Vice Commandant Bada de Adorno, upon receiving Glazer's report, sent three more doctors and two officers to Medvegia. A military surgeon named Johann Flukinger, Lieutenant Colonels Bootner and J.H. von Lindenfels, and two assistant surgeons, Siegel and Johann Friedrich Baumgarten, were sent to investigate. Flukinger's report, Visum et Repertum, or Seen and Reported, was filed on January 7th of 1732 to the High Command in Belgrade. They had exhumed 17 bodies buried at different times over the past several months. Of those, only five had decomposed. By that point, Melisa had been buried more than 90 days. When Flukinger and his team autopsied her body, they found that her chest was filled with what they observed as liquid blood. Her organs were in good condition. Soldiers who lived in the village witnessed the dissection, and those who knew her remarked that throughout her life, she'd been a very lean woman. In her grave, though, it seemed as though she'd actually gained weight. Stana, the 20-year-old woman who died while giving birth after a three-day illness, had been buried two months earlier. The report described her as quite complete and undecayed. They observed a significant amount of fresh extravascular blood inside her chest, and the blood in her arteries and veins was uncoagulated. Like Melisa, her organs were, to quote the report, as fresh as they would be in a healthy person. Except, that is, for her uterus. They noted that it was enlarged and inflamed as, since she died while giving birth, the placenta had not passed and had putrefied inside of her. The skin on her hands and feet and her finger and toenails had all fallen away, 
but new nails were evident, along with a fresh and vivid skin. Stana's child that had been buried beside a fence at their home was unable to be examined, as the child's body had been dug up and eaten by dogs. Amongst the others who displayed a stunning lack of decomposition were an eight-day-old child who'd been in the grave for more than 90 days, and Milos and Joachim, two of the teenage boys. Milos had been buried for nine weeks, and Joachim for eight weeks and four days at that point. Rutzika had died after a 10-day illness and was buried six weeks earlier. Her 18-day-old child had been buried five weeks earlier. Both were found with fresh blood in their chest and in their veins. An unnamed 10-year-old girl was, quote, quite complete and undecayed and had much fresh blood in her chest. Stanchko, a 60-year-old soldier who'd been buried for six weeks, was found with profuse liquid blood in his chest and in his stomach. And another 25-year-old soldier, also buried for six weeks, was in similar condition. Now, you may think that there's a simple explanation for this. These people were all buried in late autumn and were dug up in midwinter. With freezing temperatures, perhaps the cold could have helped preserve them. Perhaps. A body must be somewhere around 50 degrees Fahrenheit to decompose, and the temperature below ground is typically near that. In winter, it's probably even colder. Further, a body decomposes in air twice as quickly as it does in water, and eight times as rapidly as it does buried in the earth. But that doesn't explain why some of the other bodies that had been exhumed had decomposed. Although their graves had been right next to those of these supposed vampires, a soldier's wife who had died seven weeks previous and her eight-week-old child buried just 21 days earlier were both found to have completely decomposed. Another woman and her child, both having died five weeks earlier, had also completely decomposed. Roddy, the 24-year-old man who died after a three-month-long illness, had been buried just five weeks, and he too had completely decomposed. When they were done examining the bodies, Flukinger and his men gave those who were determined to be vampires to a local group of gypsies who, after cutting off the heads, burned the remains and put the ashes in the Moreva River. The bodies that had decomposed were returned to their own graves. In a letter to a skeptical friend written back in the 1840s, a British doctor named Herbert Mayo said, This is no romancer's dream. It is a succinct account of a superstition which to this day survives in the east of Europe where little more than a century ago it was frightfully prevalent. At that period, vampirism spread like a pestilence through Servia and Wallachia, causing numerous deaths and disturbing all the land with fear of the mysterious visitation against which no one felt himself secure. Do I believe it? To be sure, I do. The facts are a matter of history. The people died like sheep and the cause and the method of their dying was in their belief which has just been stated. You suppose, then, they died frightened out of their lives, as men have died whose pardon has been proclaimed when their necks were already on the block, of the belief that they were going to die? Well, if that were all, the subject would be worth examining. But there is more in it than that. As the following or true tale will convince you, the essential points of which are authenticated by documentary evidence. On the surface, one friend writing to another of the historical proof of vampires in Eastern Europe may seem unremarkable, and indeed it could be, but Mayo's letters would be republished in Blackwood's magazine in 1847, and then they were collected into a book titled Letters on the Truths Contained in Popular Superstitions. 
That book would be found in Harry Houdini's collection, one of the largest on psychic phenomena, spiritualism, magic, witchcraft, and demonology in the world. And they were amongst key research, underlined and marked, with instructions to copy entire paragraphs of the text into Bram Stoker's typewritten notes for his gothic horror novel, Dracula. Dr. Mayo didn't know what we know now about how decomposition affects the human body. If he had, it may have helped him to explain some of what was witnessed. But even so, what we know now still doesn't quite account for the oddest death in Medvegia. Sometime after Glazer had sent his report, but before Flukinger and his team had arrived, there had been another death. A young woman named Stanoika, a 20-year-old wife of a soldier, had died after a short, strange illness. Her father-in-law, a man named Jovica, reported that she had been in good health until about three weeks earlier when she began screaming in the middle of the night. Her screaming had woken up others in the home, and when asked what was wrong, she claimed that she had awoken being strangled by Milos. Milos, she'll remember, was one of the two teenagers that had been found to be undecomposed, though he died six weeks before Stanoika claimed to have seen him. Six weeks before she said that he had grabbed her by the throat to strangle her. She and the others in the home would eventually go back to sleep that night, but Stanoika would never wake up. She was pronounced dead three days later and was buried in the churchyard. When Flukinger and his team exhumed her body, fresh blood ran from her nose. Fresh blood was in her chest and in her veins. Her organs were, quote, completely good and in a healthy condition, as was her skin and her fingernails and her toenails. All of those things are probably to be expected. She hadn't, after all, been buried all that long before she was exhumed. But Flukinger and his team also noted that on her throat, beginning just under her right ear, was a deep blue bruise, the length and shape of a finger. The same kind of injury you may expect to find if someone had been strangled to death. You have been listening to episode one, The Vampires of Eastern Europe. If you enjoy Epitaph, please take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Want a place to connect with us or discuss episodes with others? Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at, at EpitaphPod. If you've got a few extra dollars, please consider joining our Patreon. There, you'll get access to Epitaph, the others, our special subscriber-only bonus show, and other exclusive content. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. This episode was researched, written, hosted, and produced by Epitaph Podcast. The content of this podcast is copyright Epitaph, Incorporated 2019, all rights reserved.